You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. Also, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 317, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Education for Special Needs, The Curative Education Course, translated by Anna Moise. Twelve lectures. This is Lecture 2, given in Dornach on the 26th of June, 1924. Endeavoring to get to the heart of things, as it were, before going into the practical aspects, I did yesterday draw your attention to the way in which the ordinary life of the mind must, at surface level, be considered to be a complex of symptoms only. Wanting to get to the actual situation that lies underneath some, in quotes, mental illness or, in quotes, mental weakness in a child, we realize that all current methods of considering mental states have their problems because people simply describe the presenting mental state, with the result that they cannot get to the deeper level, that is, to the level where the soul has its actual life, as we have seen yesterday. We cannot, on this occasion, go into the way one should approach adults who are mentally ill and know that all existing approaches have their problems. Here, in these sessions, we must consider what it is possible to do with children how little the superficial life of the mind, I use the term superficial, not in a derogatory sense, but merely to mark location. For an introduction, let me give you an extreme example of how much superficial observation of inner life can lead us astray. This will be especially important for your particular work. You see, there is a retired public prosecutor called Wolfen, He has been considering all kinds of mental anomalies from the point of view of criminal psychology, writing thick volumes on the subject. How does someone who, in the first place, does not have a medical background, arrive at his theories? He has, of course, come to know a rich field of anomalous mental states in his profession as a public prosecutor and, at a more advanced age, probably sought to learn about various medical subjects, finally connecting things he knew from his professional work with things he learned later from books. And he developed a theory of the kind which must inevitably arise from scientific premises today. For you either take the whole of it seriously, and the result is the kind of thing produced by Wolfen, or you do not take it seriously, in which case it will be necessary to base yourself on anthroposophical points of view. Any kind of middle way will always be a highly doubtful compromise. Public Prosecutor Wolfen recently gave a lecture in Zurich, and this was in the field of criminal psychology. He talked about abnormal psychology. It is important to pay attention to such a thing, for you are, after all, exposed to it at all times. If you reflect on what you have learned from any scientific volume you opened, if you pick up any book based on the scientific approach, you will always find the thought forms and way of thinking which we see in a particular 
radical form in the case of this public prosecutor. And you have to know where modern science must inevitably lead us, especially in the field of, in quotes, abnormal psychology. Before I read you the newspaper cutting, I'd draw your attention to the fact that the public prosecutor still is by far the greater authority, that Wolfen is more correct than the journalist who has written the article. All he could do was to make fun of it because today, thank heavens, he still has the readers behind him against psychiatry and criminal psychology. Obviously the tone in which the report is made should not concern you. For compared to Wolfen, the journalist is much less capable, only able to make fun of the matter, having no idea that he is making fun of modern science and not of Wolfen. For science, to which Wolfen is devoted, on which he draws, should put things in that way everywhere, if it were honest and straight. Let us now consider this newspaper article, seeing that it concerns us. The title is, quote, Schiller Psychoanalyzed by Public Prosecutor, close quote. It really should be, quote, Friedrich Schiller Psychoanalyzed by Modern Psychology or Psychopedagogy, close quote. Quote, Fred Schiller, a man without property, Swabian by origin, currently professor of history in Jena, and author of a number of revolutionary plays, was examined last Friday by Dr. E. W. Wolfen, public prosecutor in Dresden, a man renowned and respected far beyond professional circles. In a brilliantly composed speech, Dr. Wolfen spoke of the Zurich Lawyers Association on, quote, criminal psychology in the case of Friedrich Schiller, close quote, and was all the more successful as the accused, being deceased, was unable to attend, perhaps only pointing with an invisible hand to what that hand had written in his lifetime. Public prosecutor Wolfen's arguments were well-reasoned. Faultless proof was given. The prosecutor had even seized, well, I mean read, Schiller's private correspondence, and lo and behold, with the aid of Dr. Wolfen, the audience suddenly saw the reason why our nation and its young people love Schiller. Schiller clearly is popular because of his inborn cruelty, which makes him wallow in the dark magnificence of dreadful things and drives him to write ballads such as titled The Infanticide, titled The Cranes of Ibacus, titled The Diver, titled The Glove, titled Going to the Forge, where the derisory words, quote, he's taken care of and put away, the Count will thank his servants, close quote, significantly make one aware of how Schiller's constant battle with the sick body was feeding his cruelty. And Schiller's tragedies, where audiences are made to experience fear and compassion, why are they such good theater? Because they appeal to latent criminal tendencies in the audience and permit safe abreaction of dangerous instincts. Public prosecutor Wolfen said all these things and in conclusion admitted that he held Schiller in high regard. He concluded, in fact, with Goethe's epilogue to Schiller's title, The Bell. May God protect us from our friends. Public prosecutor Wolfen does, however, plead in mitigation in spite of the massive evidence against Schiller, his feeling for freedom which, following the oppression suffered in early life, 
probably led to an inferiority complex, suddenly burst into flame in title The Robbers, and emerged more clearly as time went on, ending finally in his title Tell, glorifying a revolution arising on the basis of order. Close quote Steiner again. Otherwise, he said, Schiller's view of good and evil arose essentially from aesthetic points of view, and, as said before, the main arteries that fed Schiller's literary work were soon identified by Wolfen as cruelty and the desire for freedom. The journalist concluded that Schiller's struggle against the drives, which he had brought to full expression in his works, had guided him toward perfection. Here you have the inferiority complex in his childhood, of course. Well, I think you'll agree that we have to be clear about one thing, and that is what would happen if modern science were to enter into the field of education, and teachers were then to teach in the fashion of this science in schools where such a Schiller may well be a pupil. We really must have a clear idea of this. If you now take everything I said yesterday, you would see that, as I said, just as in other morbid situations, one can only deduce the actual facts from other symptoms that point the way, so it is also possible to deduce the actual state of affairs from the inner life, from thinking, feeling, and doing, or to look back on it. We have seen from the example of the liver that the origin of a mental anomaly with the individual concerned unable to progress from the intention to do something to actually doing it, that the actual origin must be sought in some relatively subtle anomaly in the liver, and that treatment, both educational and medical, must be tackled from there. Now, before we go into details of practice, let us look back once more on the inner life of the child. On the one hand, we have seen that In the first seven years of life, the body is a model according to which the individual develops his second body, the body which then performs the functions between second dentition and sexual maturity. If the individual is stronger than the elements in his heredity, he will more or less overcome that heredity in the course of second dentition, and his individual nature will show itself outwardly in the body as well as in the whole of his soul nature. But if the child's individual nature is not strong, it will be suppressed by the hereditary traits, responding to the model by slavishly reproducing it in the visible bodily form. We will then be able to speak of hereditary traits in the real sense. For between second dentition and sexual maturity, everything will be just as it arises on the basis of individual nature. The inherited qualities will stand out because the individual nature was not strong enough to overcome them and work according to karma on its own terms. As a result, the karma impulse proves to have been drowned out by the inherited traits. Now, you see, my friends, we must at this point also consider something of a general symptomatology about the way in which thinking as it develops relates to development of the will in a child. You did yesterday see in what sense we can only consider this to be symptomatic. You have seen that thinking as it presents at the surface of the inner life is based on a synthesizing activity 
in building up and fully organizing the brain, and that expression of the will uses an analytical activity, one that keeps things apart and is the basis of our organs, especially the human being of metabolism and limbs. Let us begin by considering thinking and the synthesizing function of the brain on which it is based. We must clearly understand what thoughts really are, for thoughts always enter the child's organism bit by bit. Adults, too, have anything a human being is able to think more or less in fragments around them. One individual will have a greater volume of thoughts, another will have less. But what are thoughts really? The modern view, which then degenerates into Wolfianism, is that thoughts are something which arises in stages as the individual develops. And when someone actually has thoughts that are of value in the world, people will say that he has developed these thoughts out of himself. However, if we truly examine the human being from the anthroposophical point of view, we will be quite unable to find anything in him that might give rise to thoughts. In the light of spiritual science, all investigations designed to discover what might give rise to thoughts are like the situation where someone is every morning provided from somewhere with a jug of milk, see plate two, the right side, and being very clever would one day start to reflect on how the clay of which the pottery jug is made produces the milk every morning. You'll never find anything in the clay of which the jug is made that might produce milk. Let us now imagine that a maid, no, let us say a modern housewife, who has formerly been a governess, even if such a thing is almost impossible, but, you know, it might happen that someone had never noticed how the milk got into the jug. We might consider someone who might reflect on how the milk seeps from the clay, how that happens, rather naively. Yes, this is an hypothesis that takes itself to absurdity, to assume that someone might arrive at such a view regarding the milk jug. Yet in science people come to this hypothesis about thinking. It is that naive, beyond doubt that naive. For if you undertake the investigation with all the means which spiritual science has to offer, means which we have now been speaking of for more than twenty years, you will also find nothing in the whole of the human organization that is capable of producing thoughts. There simply is no such thing. Just as the milk has to be poured into the jug so that it may be in there, so must thoughts enter into the human being in order to be there. Where do they come from in the life which we must first consider, the life between birth and death? Where are they? Just as we can establish the way milk is produced, so we ought to be able to establish where the thoughts are. Where are these thoughts? Well, you see, we have the physical world around us, but also the etheric world, from which the human ether body is taken directly before we descend to our physical incarnation. The human ether body is taken from the general world ether or cosmic ether, which is present absolutely everywhere. And this cosmic ether, my friends, is in real terms the bearer of thoughts. This cosmic ether, which all have in common, 
is the bearer of thoughts. The thoughts are in there. The living thoughts, of which I have always told you also in anthroposophical lectures, which human beings also enjoy in pre-earthly life, before they come down to earth. Everything that exists by way of such thoughts is alive in the cosmic ether. It is never taken from the cosmic ether during life between birth and death. Never. But the store of living thoughts human beings have within them has been received at the moment when they descended from the spiritual world. That is, when they left their own living thought element as they descended and created their ether body. The living thoughts are still present there in the element which is at work developing and organizing the human being. If I draw yesterday's sketch again, see plate two in the center, and you have the human being here, and the symptomatic inner life of thinking, feeling, and will here, with the inner life, the genuine inner life behind, then thoughts are a part of this genuine inner life. These thoughts, which we take from the general cosmic ether, above all develop the brain, and in a wider sense the neurosensory system. This is live thinking. It makes our brain into a destructive organ, an organ which may be said to treat matter in the following way. Looking out at our environment, we have the substance of earthly existence all around us, its different processes and modes of action. These processes, which are alive in nature, are broken down in stages by the activity of live thinking so that natural processes are constantly stopped here. See plate 2. In the brain, therefore, a start is made with stopping the natural processes, and matter is constantly separating out. The matter, which has dropped out, having been eliminated as being no longer of any use, those are the nerves. And having been treated in this way by live thinking, having been killed all the time, the nerves gain an ability, which is rather like the power to reflect, mirror. They gain the power by which they mirror the thoughts in the surrounding ether, and this gives rise to subjective thinking, the superficial thinking consisting wholly in mirror images, which we have in us between birth and death. With live thinking active in us, we thus grow able to hold up our system of senses and nerves to the world, produce mirror images of the impressions that live in the surrounding ether, and throw these mirror images into the conscious mind. This thinking and forming of ideas in the surface inner life thus is nothing but a reflection of the thoughts that live in the cosmic ether. When you compare yourself with your mirror image, you realize that you are different from your mirror image. In the same way, you can compare thoughts with their mirror images, and this will give you dead thinking, just as the mirror image you are facing is dead, though you are alive in front of the mirror. There never can be a distorted, illogical, crazy thought in the cosmic ether. But the thoughts in our ordinary, superficial inner life are only reflections of the thoughts in the cosmic ether, so where, 
could a crazy, perverse idea come from? It comes about when the mirror, everything that has developed to be the brain, is not in order. So it is a matter for us to find the way back, in the right way, from the distorted thoughts to the principle that is actually at work in the human brain or in the neurosensory system, something that the human being has developed for himself from the genuine living life of thought. You can see from this that it is really enormously much the case that we start by being aware that the actual thought content, the thoughts as such, are beyond our reach. They are in the cosmic ether, and there they are absolutely right. We now have to try and do everything we can so that the child who has been given into our care can get to this cosmic ether in the right way. We shall never do it unless we as teachers have a real feeling for it, that the livingness of thoughts that are wholly right is to be found in the cosmic ether. Without this cosmic religious point of view, we cannot possibly progress to having the right attitude to the child. And it is this attitude which matters. Let me show you why it is the attitude which matters. What influences a child? lives in a child when it arrives at distorted thoughts. And what influence can the teacher have on the child in such a situation? You see, it is evident from what I have been saying that the ether body was not given the right form when we have such a situation. When human beings descend from pre-earthly existence, all the thoughts in the cosmic ether are, of course, right and proper. But these right thoughts must be taken in by the individual who is putting on his ether body as a garment. Let us go back to our milk jug again. We cannot say that the milk has somehow been given the wrong form. It assumes the form which the jug that holds it is able to give it. If it is a sensible container, the milk will be kept in a sensible way. Let us assume a perverse individual gets the idea of shaping a milk jug like this, plate two, see the right side, and now pours in the milk. It cannot go down into it. He makes his calculations, however, and in working out the cubic volume of the container, he will include this, the lower part. This is the most extreme case. It is possible to make the container awkward in all kinds of ways. It may be made such, for instance, that it topples over, and on the 27 out of 30 days in the month the milk will run out because the base has been made in such an awkward way. The situation is, therefore, that the milk will assume the form of the vessel in which it is. The ether body, in all its vitality, is such in the human being as that person arrives with his karma from pre-earthly existence, able to take in the ether body. This is something we must be aware of. Well, it is not at all impossible for someone to arrive with something, thanks to his karma, that does not look so very different from this milk container. If he arrives and, because of his karma, is not able to penetrate his metabolism and limbs properly, so that they are poorly provided for with ether body, the individual will have a properly developed ether body in the region of the head and a poorly developed one in the abdominal region and in the limbs. He will be empty 
of form-giving thoughts in these parts. Thus we must above all things be clear that the ether body is inadequately developed in many children who have mental limitations. And we must ask ourselves, what will influence an ether body that is present in the years of childhood development? What influences an ether body? Here we come upon a law that applies in all education. It is that it is always the next higher level of essential human nature which acts on the one below, whichever it may be, and that this alone will be effective in making it develop. For development, something living in the ether body, in an etheric body, can effectively influence the physical body. Only a principle living in an astral body can effectively help development of an ether body. Only a principle living in an I capital can effectively help the development of an astral body. And only a principle living in a spirit self can take effect on an I. I could continue beyond the spirit self, but that would take us into the field of esoteric teaching. What does this mean? When you note that the ether body of a child is stunted in some way, you must configure your own astral body in such a way that it can have a corrective effect on the child's ether body. We can actually say that with regard to the system of education it may be put as follows. Child, physical body, teacher, ether body. Child, ether body, teacher, astral body. Child, astral body, teacher, I. Child, I, teacher, spirit, self. The teacher's own ether body must be able to act on the child's physical body, and this is part of the teacher's training in college. The teacher's astral body must be able to influence the child's ether body. The teacher's I must be able to influence the child's astral body. And now you are in for a bit of a shock, for it refers to the teacher's spirit self, though you will think that it has not yet developed. This has to influence the child's eye, and that is the law. And I'll show you in how far the spirit self, not only of the ideal teacher, but even of the worst possible teacher, influences the child's eye, even if the teacher has no conscious awareness of this. The whole of education is indeed veiled in a number of mysteries. Now we realize that the teacher's health-giving astral body must act on the child's stunted ether body. And, you see, how can the teacher's astral body be trained with regard to just these things? How can it be self-trained, which is how it still has to be today? For anthroposophy can only give encouragement today. It cannot set up training colleges for everything right now. The teacher's own astral body must be such that he has an instinctive insight into the deficiencies in the child's ether body. Let us assume the child's ether body is stunted in the liver region. This creates the phenomenon that the child stands there with his intentions, always willing to act, but always stopping the doing before he comes to it. If the teacher is able to develop a real inner feeling for this situation, that one has to use one's will to push through to the deed. If the teacher can have a feeling for this stopping, 
and is at the same time able to develop out of his own energies a profound compassion with that inner experience, he will develop understanding for the child's position in his own astral body and will gradually learn to erase all trace of sympathy or antipathy for this phenomenon in the child. The teacher will educate his own astral body by erasing the sympathy and antipathy he is feeling. A tendency like this in a child may go so far as to be pathological. It may become an appreciable condition, always becoming pathological, so that one will say that the child cannot learn to walk. For as long as we have sympathy or antipathy toward the child who wants to walk, but is unable to walk when it is there to even a minor degree. For as long as we may get upset by this, we will not be able to work effectively with the child. It is only when we have got so far that such a phenomenon is an objective image for us, taken as an objective image with some equanimity, feeling nothing but compassion, then we have the state of soul in the astral body that will make the teacher stand at the child's side in the right way. We will then do everything more or less correctly. For, my friends, you'll not believe how immaterial it really is what you say or do not say outwardly as a teacher and how much it matters what you yourself are as a teacher. But how does one gain such understanding? You come to it by developing a growing interest in the mystery of the human organization altogether. This mystery, this interest in the human organization altogether, is lacking completely in our present civilization. Because of this, people do not know one thing. Our modern civilization looks at someone, let us say, with a severe mental illness, bracket, there is a gap in the text, close bracket, These things don't work in any other way. They can only take place within this civilization. And so the things we are meant to grasp also cannot be done in the way we understand them to be in every single case. It is therefore most important that there are no fanatics among you, people who are fanatics from the word go, who do not know how to assess the importance of a truth when it is a question of applying esoteric teaching to practical life, One has to limit the things that are said to a very small group. For in our modern civilization, people are unable to see why, in many cases, it is not possible to follow the guidelines. We need to know this, however, and then use common sense, applying it where it needs to be applied. And this will be the case in educating children with disabilities. Apply it within appropriate limits. You cannot use it with mentally ill adults, for there something extraneous comes in, namely the law. The moment you have to deal with impulses other than those arising from the given situation, that is, with legislation, it will no longer be possible to use the method. For legislation is general and cannot apply to the individual situation. All it can be is general. When it comes to treating people with disabilities, the law is simply poison. Yet you have to face it. You cannot be a fanatic in the way you use things. You have to let them flow into life where possible, considering the way things are. Let us assume 
you have someone of whom it is said that he has a serious mental illness. Using psychography, as is common today, you can describe this in its symptoms. He does the oddest things, according to the view which simply has to be applied. Yes, in our civilization, people do not think about the actual situation. They simply do not think. You see, the situation is as follows. The individual who today presents as a complete oddball may possibly have had a highly significant incarnation in earlier times, have been an absolute genius some time or other. But let us say this life as a genius had been two incarnations earlier. See plate three below. Another incarnation followed when the individual concerned was incarcerated at a relatively early age so that he had no opportunity to relate to the world. He then went through death and lived on. After this he returned as a madman. It was exactly because the things he had taken in during that earlier incarnation stayed completely outside the sphere of life experience in the physical and etheric body. He had no opportunity to digest them. And he thus incarnates in complete ignorance of the internal human body. He cannot enter into his physical body and ether body, stays outside it, and being unable to use his physical body, he is then mad. He is such that we can only see what he is if we completely ignore his physical and his ether body, looking only at his astral body and I, capital. Imagine we have such a person before us as a child. We then have these constant attempts of the child to enter into his physical body and into the ether body, and we have this constant rejection. Now, it may perfectly well be the case that, let us say, in a diagram, the physical body and ether body would be here. See plate 3 on the right. There are some organs which, thanks to the precondition, are not all right. The astral body and the eye want to enter into them. They do get in everywhere there, plate 3, but not properly. Every time it is an effort. Let us say the astral body and the eye must make an effort every time the liver and stomach are to be penetrated. This effort has a strange effect. A kind of abnormal rhythm develops. The effort means that the eye grows stronger at a particular moment and then weakens again and a powerful liver and stomach sensation comes and goes in the child. And before it has come to conscious awareness, a weakened feeling for liver and stomach has arisen. The child is all the time swinging to and fro between this powerful sensation of liver and stomach and the weakened sensation of liver and stomach. As a result, the child cannot use his body in the normal way. For we can only use it if that rhythm is not present and the astral body and eye calmly take possession of the individual organs. Yes, but how can we get to understand such a thing? We get to understand it if we look at the whole process more or less in the following way. Let us assume someone is very, very clever, but he definitely is not a watchmaker. His watch has stopped, however, and he needs to repair it himself. He does not repair it, but ruins it completely. The fact that he is very clever does not stop him. His cleverness failed when it came to a particular measure because he lacked the requisite skills. He did not lack cleverness. 
This is how it may happen that general genius suffers failure on descending from pre-earthly existence, though this happens not in such a short time, but rather in the whole life on earth. This really challenges us to look at what is descending, look lovingly at what comes to expression in, in quotes, madness. Look at every detail coming to expression in the madness, going beyond a mere symptomatology of the mental life that may lead to psychography and considering more the karmic situation in which the madman finds himself, looking more to his relationship to the outside world, the situations in which he finds himself in life, for these situations in life are incredibly interesting, to look at this more objectively and then find this madness extraordinarily interesting, taking it for a distorted reflection of the most sublime wisdom, the spiritual world opening a door, but with the means of exit distorted, entering more and more into the mode of finding anomalous things interesting, not in a sensationalist way, but deep down inside you finding these things interesting. For when an anomaly really takes hold of the physical and ether body, the change will come, which I mentioned earlier, consisting in a rhythm as astral body and eye activity grow powerful, with the physical and ether body strongly taken hold of, then astral body and eye activity is overcome, grows weak again. And if you approach this, find a way toward it, you can observe what happens at the moment of taking hold intensely and the moment of taking hold feebly. If you approach this with all your powers of love, then it will be evident from the rhythm that later when it has been overcome, liver and stomach are taken hold of more intensely than is usually the case, and a genial act, doing something, can arise from this. Otherwise it will be left to the process between death and rebirth when these things are balanced out. Just consider, you have to be aware that working with children who have disabilities, who are actually intervening in something, which left to take its natural course or subjected to the wrong intervention, will only happen when the child has gone through the gate of death and is reborn in his or her next life, intervening deeply in karma. You are always intervening in karma, when treating a child with mental disabilities, and one does, of course, have to intervene. This is actual intervention in karma, and certain things have to be overcome there. The fact that certain things are overcome is something of which some of you who are present here and have been in Breslau did see an example, and I will tell you about this so that you get to think in the right way about such things. In the agriculture course in Breslau, I provided guidelines on how to manage agriculture in the right way. An older farmer, who was also a member of the society, was present. Throughout the course, he could not get beyond a certain sentience or feeling, and this would emerge again and again in the discussion. He kept saying, quote, Yes, but if you do that, you are using occult means to do practical things. Does this not touch on human morality in too intensive a way? Close quote. He could not overcome this scruple, suspecting the use of such things to be black magic. Yes, such things will be black magic if you do not treat them the way they should be treated. 
This is why, on one occasion, I said quite clearly, quote, Yes, there has to be morality with all these things. And I presume that everyone who has attended has done so in order to serve humanity in a holy moral way and to help agriculture. Close quote. This is also why we must take the agricultural ring to be a moral ring, which makes it its mission to see that these things are used in the right way. Magic, the gods use it. But the difference between white and black magic is merely that white magic is used to intervene in a moral, ethical way, selflessly. And black magic is used in an unethical, selfish way. That is the only difference. And, of course, with all the talk about educating children with mental disabilities being just words that lead to nothing, this education can only be effective if means are used that can also be used unethically. The most important thing is to strengthen one's sense of responsibility. Now, I simply have to admit to you, my friends, that much could be done if the sense of responsibility were greater in our time. But today, when conscientiousness is not so well developed, one also has to keep quiet about many things. When people hear of one thing or another being possible, then they want to do it. They do have the wish to do something. But as soon as it comes to really doing something, not really carrying on with the old impulses, as soon as it is a matter of getting new impulses again from the spiritual world, and we have to fetch them from there, it is above all a matter of encouraging a sense of responsibility and conscientiousness. This will only happen if we know what this is about. And so we have to know that it is a matter of intervening deeply in karmic activities, which would otherwise come between death and rebirth. In the education of children with mental disabilities, the things we do here intervene in the work of the gods, things that would otherwise come later. If you do not see this as a theory but firmly let it influence your heart and mind, you will, of course, always face the decision of doing what needs to be done or not doing it. But we should not forget that every step taken at the prompting of the spiritual world makes us look to the right and the left and always come to a new decision with inner courage in life. Ordinary life between birth and death preserves people from needing this inner courage. They can just go on doing what they are used to doing, things that are familiar. They toddle on according to what is in them, always considering their own views to be right, with no need to gain new ones. For the life that is holy within the physical world, it is fine to be like this. But when it comes to following the promptings of the Spirit in our actions, we must daily, hourly feel that decisions have to be made, and with every action, feel that we may either do it or not do it, or else to be completely neutral. And it needs courage to make these decisions, inner courage. This is the very first condition if we want to take action in a field like this. The courage will only awaken in us if we are always aware that we are doing something which otherwise the gods will do in the life between death and rebirth. It is most important to know this. Meditate on this. 
To be able to think this is most important. If you bring this to mind every day as you meditate, so that it is like a prayer said every day, bringing it to mind every day, this will generate the condition in the astral body which we need if we are to face the child with mental disability in the right way. We have to believe that we must prepare ourselves in this way, and then we can talk about other things as well. Let us therefore consider these things to be an introduction and thoroughly reflect on them. It is the state of mind which matters when one wants to tackle the kind of work of which we are speaking. The end of Lecture 2